Welcome to the Pearsfield Oliver webcast. I'm Louise Oliver and I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend and the investment commentator, Justin Urquhart-Stewart. Now, Justin is the chairman of Regionally Limited and Regionally seeks to connect businesses with investors, not just in the southeast, but throughout the UK. And I know that you've had a few successful um, arrangements and deals that you've done so far. So well done on that, Justin. And Justin also is the uh, co-founder of Seven Investment Management. Right now, in this webcast, we're going to be looking at the year ahead and what we need to think about for the global economy. So what challenges do we have and what do investors need to be aware of? So let's kick off with the UK. Now, just in today, I've got some questions both from our clients and also from some of the PO team. Now, talking about the UK, I noticed in the news only this morning that the ONS has come out with some statistics for November. Now, apparently GDP in November was up by 0.9%. Now, that's really positive. Now, December and January might not look so good with the onset of the Omicron. So on that note, do you think that the markets, the financial markets have factored in the end of the global pandemic? And what effect do you think this might have on investor confidence moving forwards? Well, first of all, Louise, good morning. And thank you very much for inviting me on. A pleasure to to, uh, be part of it. I think it's fascinating at the moment because the markets are, I'm afraid, still very confused because they're not sure which way things are going. The good news, as you just highlighted there, is that actually the growth figures from GDP seem to be quite positive. It looks as though we're back to where we were before we entered the pandemic, in fact, slightly ahead. But please be careful. These um, statistics are notoriously unreliable. But I don't want to pour cold water on it. But the good news is it's growing. We're just not quite sure how strong it's going to be. If we look elsewhere around the world to see what impact it has on Britain, because obviously America will have a big impact, she shows sign of actually after an initial enthusiasm, it starts coupling down a little bit. And so the rest of the growth for this year in the UK uh, is going to be still be growth, but possibly not as exciting as some people have been anticipating, like the Chancellor, talking about 6% growth, I think is uh, pretty enthusiastic, particularly when you've got this year coming up, which I'm calling the, the year of the squeeze. A personal squeeze for people in Britain in terms of your taxes going up, the national insurance, your fuel costs are going up a lot. Um, And then you've also got uh, other elements related to the pandemic as well. And you've got underlying inflation, which might be embedded. So a whole series of factors that the market really hasn't taken account of. Why? Because it can't see through it. It's looking into a fog bank at the moment and is really rather confused. Yeah, so on the note of um, inflation, Justin, because of course that's reared its, dare I say, ugly head. Um, And we're at 5.1 in the UK, higher in uh, the US. And you just alluded to the fact that you feel that it's it's embedded. Now, I just want your take on inflation because it's not always bad, is it? No, no, inflation is, uh, is actually extremely useful. Put it the other way. If you had deflation, that's much more painful. So a little bit of inflation. I'm afraid it's a bit like the three bears of their porridge. You don't want it too hot. You don't want it too cold. You want it smack in the middle. The trouble is lukewarm porridge is quite difficult to come across. Um, so what you'll find is inflation can have a nasty habit of taking off. Now, 
But the issue with this inflation is it's primarily we've seen as a drive because of price of commodities, particularly oil, gas, and all the other ones, but also other food commodities and such like. Um, and then we'll see wage rises coming up. Those wage rises won't be running at the same level as inflation, so people will be probably feeling poorer. The question is, therefore, how do you control it? And you control it traditionally by putting up interest rates. But if you put up interest rates too quickly, you could easily then stifle the recovery. So it's a really difficult balancing act, not just for the Bank of England, but for all the capitalist systems and the central bankers around the world. But you're absolutely right. A nice bit of inflation is rather good. Why? Well, because your debt, as you were just implying there with government debt, gets devalued. So every year that goes by, your debt's worth a little bit less. But equally, on the other hand, if you're on a fixed income, for instance, say you cashed in your money for a pension, you've now got a fixed amount coming in every month, well, that's devaluing as well. So as we saw, and I remember going back to the 1970s, yes, I am really that old, at least it's the 1970s, not the 1870s, um, and you saw there with inflation at 25%, people on their fixed pensions being absolutely decimated. And there was nothing they could actually do about it then because they were locked into schemes that couldn't adjust. So we mustn't forget that. And the trouble is, there's an entire generation of people who come through who have no knowledge or experience of inflation. Now, we know how to manage it. There are things that will go along with inflation, like inflation-linked bonds and things like that, but also certain equities as well, which can pass on the cost of inflation. Those things that can't pass on the cost of inflation, they're the ones that get hit. So you have to be really very careful there indeed. So our portfolios are all going to have to take into account the greater flexibility for this. And although People do in a good balanced portfolio, you need some fixed income in there. You don't want too much fixed income if it's being eroded away. But for the courtesy of actually providing some alternative uh, assets, you'll probably still have some in there, but maybe it's towards the linked uh, inflation linked bonds will be more attractive. Yeah, it's a fine balance, isn't it, Justin? Especially for the um, for the for the for the global governments as to whether they put interest rates up or they don't, as you said. And and it, it does remind us that. Well, first of all, we're all living a lot longer, aren't we? So inflation does bite, especially when you're on a fixed amount of income or you have a certain pot that's got to last you, which could be, for some people, as long as they've worked. So as you said, to back your money with an asset that's going to fight inflation over that time is really, really important. And you can find these around. I mean, for instance, typically equities are quite good at passing on. Uh, so normally you would have, say, equities, which were, say, say, tech power companies. They would normally be able to pass that cost on. Ah, but wait, we've got power companies now in a regulated world where there's a price cap, albeit that price is going to go up. So be wary. It's not always going to be the case. Things like supermarkets can usually pass on the costs as well. So, so long as they've got flexibility, you can see the headlines over the past two weeks. We've seen Next, we've seen uh, various other companies coming out, putting their prices up now because here's the time they can get away with it because everybody else is doing so, so we don't look as though we're the odd one out. Prices are rising and companies will take advantage of this moment to try and get those prices up now so they don't look like the greedy ones later in the year. But it will put pressure on margins and those margins will impact on the share price when companies uh, look at valuations. Yes, definitely one to watch, isn't it? And we've got so used to low inflation, low interest rates, which actually isn't really normal, is it? So maybe we're back to more sort of normal normal uh, inflation and uh, eventually long-term interest rates. And you're right there, you see those interest rates. We're still on emergency uh, interest rates. These are the low level of rates we have because of the banking crisis. Um, now, we're no longer in a banking crisis, still in the pandemic, but realistically, we really should be about 3 or 4%. 
And one of the reasons that certainly the Bank of England will be keen to try and rates, get rates up a little bit is that if there is then a problem, they can cut them again. Well, when you're pretty close to north, cutting at north doesn't really help very much. So we've gone up a little bit, but be prepared. They will want to put rates up a little bit further. And if inflation is going to be stubborn, then they'll use that as a pretty good excuse to give them a little bit more breadth to be able to say, if trouble does come, we can cut it again if necessary. And I think you've seen over the past few months, some of the offers from uh, building starters and banks have been withdrawn as they've been uh, quite often waiting to see what's going to happen with interest rates, um, because they also want to make sure they can lock in their side of the deal as well. Um, And if they don't do that, they'll find themselves in the same position as well. Some of the amateur energy companies we saw going bust uh, last year. Why? Because they didn't actually hedge their positions and make sure they were secure. Post leaving the EU, so what kind of state do you think we're in, the UK? And are we now going to be that attractive place to do business that we hoped that we would be? And if you think we are, which sectors are most likely to benefit from this? Well, I have to say, uh, uh, by leaving the EU, we have made ourselves poorer. Whether you agree with it or not, we are where we are, so we've got to make the best of it. Does that mean we're going to be Singapore as to, to you know, version in Europe? The answer is it's a silly. We're completely different. Singapore is an island size of the Isle of Wight. Um, it's a city-state. Uh, Britain is still the fifth largest economy in the world. So they're completely different. What we can do, though, is make ourselves more flexible. Um, now, we were never in the euro, so uh, we can still make use of the fact we've got our uh, own currencies. That allows us to do quantitative easing, gives us that flexibility. In theory, we could adjust our taxation rules to be more beneficial, uh, but we have to be quite careful with that because we have to make sure that's not seen as being uh, destabilizing other trading relationships. Um, the issue we've got is we had uh, mistrust going around the world last year, before she became foreign secretary, doing deals with Australia and New Zealand, which is fine, but it's tiny. Our biggest trading partner is smack next door to us. It's called Europe. And so that's where we need to focus and make sure we get deals done properly there and deals to make sure that we have simple, free trade. That's what you need to try and get to. A bit like the Swiss situation you've got um, to actually make sure that you've got that flexibility. And But you have to pay to be part of that. Um, but I'm afraid that's the, the position we find ourselves in. So trading is going to be more complicated. Speak to anybody who's got uh, goods going flowing across the channel or across the Irish border. The paperwork is new. Some of it is not understandable, not complete. So there's an awful lot of work still to be done. So we still don't know. What we can do is actually give us the flexibility for more localised investment, which Europe might have stopped us from doing, into, say, those areas. And I'm not one to get government to start picking investment areas. We don't want government investing at all. But to encourage those areas of growth, which is primarily technology, mm. the smaller companies, particularly not just in the in the southeast, but around the country, and helping those uh, technology businesses actually grow and develop. We're great at starting them. We're absolutely useless at financing them into the next stage. That's where actually we can really show ourselves to be much more dynamic than the rest of Europe by actually helping to encourage that growth with some imaginative financing. That does not mean extra government money. But it does need some imagination in terms of taxation to reward wealth creation, to reward the actual companies actually getting stronger and wealthier um, and be able to make sure they operate effectively. That doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but it does need some imagination. Sadly, of course, we're dealing with a bunch of politicians, most of whom have um, never had a job. Well, not a proper job anyway, in my view. But we are a nation of shopkeepers, aren't we, Justin? And we've got some amazing entrepreneurs here in the UK. And I was reading that we've actually had around about 18 billion invested in our tech sector 
Clear. And you see, we can export that, that technology capability very well. And uh, you know, that's a, a real value. So where do we find this technology? The answer is, well, look around the countryside and you could see whether it's the old-fashioned awful taglines of Silicon Roundabout, Silicon Glen, Silicon Fen, Silicon Beach, Silicon Gorge, that's Bristol. Um, but what you'll find is where little groups of uh, tech companies get together, they've got the right infrastructure to do it. They breed uh, they split up, they make they have other facilities. That's where you find this, this uh, grouping occurring. And so what can the government help with that? Well, one, make sure it's proper infrastructure. That does not mean a train going faster to Birmingham. Uh, what that means is actually proper infrastructure in uh, high-speed internet uh, going across the country. So no matter where you are, you are uh, to make sure you've got that capability. And then two, making sure there's taxation which is rewarding you for taking the risk of investing. We already have EIS and SEIS for smaller companies, enterprise investment schemes. I'd like to put an R in front of that and have REIS, regional enterprise investment schemes, to be able to encourage people to take the risk for local investments and not having to go via London, because London is still very expensive. And uh, so when you go through smaller company markets like AIM and things, um, it can be its own worst enemy. We know there is more demand for capital. We also know there's no shortage of capital. It's just that we managed to take away the plumbing to get the money from investors into those companies. There are lots of venture funds and things like that. They tend to be quite short term, three years. We need people looking at longer term, rewarding them five to 10 years worth of investing, which is typically what you'd find on the continent and elsewhere, rather than short term private equity. Again, no government money needed here. This is just a matter of initiative and imagination and provide a taxation system rewarding risk taking uh, in a reasonable level and rewarding actual capital growth. People talk about capital gains tax and reforming it. Well, it really should be capital gains tax. The more actually you're creating for people, actually, the less tax there is on the capital gain in terms of percentage anyway. So people are really rewarded for that wealth creation. And that over the past 20, 30 years, when we first joined the EU, we were the poor man of Europe. We left as one of the wealthiest people in Europe. We need to make sure we sustain that. And you sustain that by more creation of jobs, initiative and investment. And one of the key measures will be inward investment into Britain, which has dropped off recently, not surprisingly because of what's happened in the pandemic, but also because people can't actually see the result of Brexit as yet. So lots of opportunities, Justin, but we have to make it happen. We have to do something yeah. about it and move forwards and deal with all of these issues that you've mentioned. So next question, um, just on the EU, what's your view now of the EU? But the EU's got a big problem. One, it appears to have lost its leader. It had a de facto leader in the form of Mrs. Merkel, dear Angela. Um, the French may have disagreed about it, but basically she was the political leader of the uh, EU uh, without the UK being involved. Everyone respected her. She had a huge amount of experience, and she wasn't well known for her parties at the headquarters of their party. Um, we leave that to the likes of Boris. Um, no, the, what you had is, of course, A, a lack of leadership, uh, B, also a problem which David Cameron didn't take count of when he was going around trying to persuade people rather limply to support him. We've got the Visegrad group, which is actually Poland, Slovak Republic, Czech Republic and Romania. And basically these are East European nations, previously part of the communist bloc in the old days of the Cold War. When uh, the Soviet Union fell, uh, they joined the EU after a period of time. Now what they're saying is, hang on a second, we weren't run by Moscow for 50 years, so now have it replaced by Brussels. We demand powers brought back to us, please, not be run by centralised uh, bureaucracy, which is what they see Brussels as. Familiar that? That's exactly what we seem to be saying. 
So a pity the camera didn't go and talk to them. So they got that issue of actually in Europe actually pulling apart, not pulling together. But the third item to look at is actually the euro itself. The euro is still a bugger's muddle of a currency. It's a camel um, because it's put together primarily by the French with enthusiasm. Let's all have a single currency because that'll make us European. Every time you try to do that before, it doesn't really work very well. Not out of emotion, but sheer mathematics and economics will tell you. If you've got countries with different taxation systems, different banking systems, different banking regulation and tax systems, fiscal systems, um, it won't work. <clears throat> now, in Britain, we have a single tax system. Uh, we do have the Scottish um, system whereby they, have, they can change the taxes, but the tax system itself is fundamentally the same. We have free movement of capital. All of that works. You don't have that in Germany, where you see the Germans who do pay tax against the Greeks who don't like paying tax at all and a different mechanism running it. So in the short term, it'll still carry on because everyone wants it to carry on. But unless they reform that, it will pull apart. And therefore, that currency will eventually probably split into two, maybe a Nero and a zero, a sort of northern Nero, and then an outer group of it. But don't panic about that yet. But that's a longer-term fault line. It's our version of sort of financial San Andreas uh, running through the centre of the Eurozone. Um, can we go over to China now? What I want to ask you about, Justin, is the Evergrande crisis, because is this something we should be worrying about? Because this is potentially going to affect the world markets, because it, basically Evergrande, for the benefit of our listeners, is it's an, it's an enormous property development company. It's embedded across China. It's in around about 200 cities. They've got hundreds of developments. And overseas investors are exposed to about 90 billion of debt um, through this company, and they have defaulted on their, on their debt. So is this something we need to worry about? You need to be very concerned about all Chinese companies. This sounds like a broad brush statement, that it is. Why? China is not a capitalist nation, um, nor does it have, let's say, capitalist rules. Companies go bust in China when the Communist Party allows them to go bust. Uh, and bear in mind, every uh, company of any significant size will have members of the, of the party on the board controlling what's happening, not controlling the company day to day. Evergrande had another problem because they had a lot of Hong Kong focus and uh, the domestic Chinese were far as they were we're going to make sure that Hong Kong is not seen to be a success. And therefore, one way you have a go at that is make sure you have a go at those companies which were benefiting from Hong Kong or were seen to have benefited from Hong Kong in its previous state. They want to show that the old colonial structure failed in the end and you're better off with our structure. Uh, so you've got that working against it. But then you've also got this bloated property market in China, again, which is fixed. So as an outside investor, we have no real idea as to how strong these businesses are. They will go bust. If the Communist Party wants them to go bust, maybe to cause pain to certain people. You only have to look at some of the multimillionaires that have been so successful in China who seem to be not so easily available these days. Um, and if that sounds more like some sort of trashy spy novel, I'm afraid it's rather true. So please be careful. In many ways, we need to in invest in the effect of China, not to say in China itself. So invest in what China needs, which is a lot of commodities and things like that, what China needs in terms of uh, technical skills and technology and things like that, and make sure they don't nick it off you, um, rather than necessarily taking the risk of investing directly into individual Chinese companies. 
there was a gentleman that uh, you'll remember actually he's um, uh, called, called Mr. Bolton at the um, uh, the FT. I'm uh, sorry, at, um, uh, of Fidelity, who was incredibly good at actually operating his domestic UK fund. He retired, and they brought him back out of retirement to go and run a Chinese fund. Um, and they said, we'll give you all the information you need, get a place in Hong Kong, all the bits and pieces. And after two or three years, he gave up. Why? Because the rules didn't apply in China that he was used to here. There wasn't the fair governance and guidance and all those things you would expect to have. So please be wary. Um, these are very difficult markets indeed. And so I'm afraid it's something which you really don't want to be entering that equity market directly. Yes, we'll go via funds and things, so people have got probably some greater expertise in that area. But more to point, thinking about where demand is within China, which we can, you can invest in that demand. Investing in companies which are then exporting from China um, or operating within China itself, you have no control of whatsoever. So please be very wary indeed. And if it means you're missing out on some paper profits there, I'd rather do that than find myself in an Evergrande situation where you're stuck and you end up losing a great proportion. Yeah, absolutely, Justine. I suppose it reminds us not to be overly exposed to one sector or one country and have that, that spread, the diversified portfolios that, that you, you know that we run. Um, emerging markets. So the emerging markets have especially struggled with the pandemic because they haven't got the quality of the medical care. They haven't got the high vaccination rates. So in the, over the last couple of years, they, we, we've really seen that they have struggled. But what's your view for investors on the medium to longer term of the emerging markets? Well, divide them up into different areas. It's a bit like sort of saying you know, uh, they're all the sort of emulsion colour paint. Um, uh, we need to actually make sure we see differences. So you have an emerging nation like Russia, uh, which is very different from, say, the ASEAN uh, nations down in Southeast Asia. Uh, Russia is actually a terrible economy, doing extremely badly. Its entire GDP is less than half that of the United Kingdom, which sounds perverse given the size of Russia. Russia is not a superpower. It's a dangerous power. But economically, no, it's not. But you don't want to be investing in, China, in Russia, probably, for the same reasons you would be very wary about China. But on other areas, you'd be much more interested. So, for instance, those countries producing commodities in a way which can be seen as being well run, have a level of governance to it, and some form of control, often by maybe external companies operating there, typically miners and such like. So commodity companies, uh, say, drilling in, in uh, Chile or Brazil and places like that, uh, taking out copper and iron ore, there's uh, good, always demand for that. So, again, be wary, but at least you can see the sort of businesses you're dealing with and there's much more information. So demand for commodities will actually impact on those type of emerging markets. I mentioned ASEAN deliberately, and you know I bored you with this before, mainly because part of my family is in ASEAN, and my daughter appears to be living there now. Um, and uh, so ASEAN is different, because there you see the rise of the Oriental middle class, now, a whole region which is now growing dramatically um, in terms of expenditure, much more like Europe and America, still a long way to go, still a huge, um, uh, much, much poorer rural class, a growing middle class, but they're spending and they're spending and they're investing. And those economies actually fared not too badly uh, in, the, uh, in the pandemic and been the first to come out. So they're not all the same. So pick different areas. India is a developing nation, but a huge scale in many ways more attractive than China because it is more open in its regulation and control. And it's can see more of what's going on. The companies to a great extent have a more westernized approach to accounting. Um, and uh, so that's more encouraging. 
When you look at sort of the African nations, then you're really dealing, not just emerging, but you're really dealing with frontier markets, Wild West markets. Um, and so be very careful there. A lot of that is going to be not just if it's producing commodities, but really down to the governments of the countries themselves. It's all very working money, uh, but can you actually get any of that money out in the end? So be selective. But the emerging nations are emerging, and you can invest, invest in those, but they're not all the same. My bias is towards Southeast Asia. I've got more experience myself down there, but also you can see how that's changing. And I have a lot more confidence than I have in that than I think many other areas of the world where the risks to me are just too high. Overall, Justin, can you sum up how you feel as an investor about the year ahead? And how do we navigate through this, no doubt, choppy time to come in the, in the markets? Well, I think the first reaction is after last year is, phew, we got our way, we, we're still here. We got through it all. And I have to say, it's remarkable what happened to the pandemic. Um, remarkable, not just in terms of the speed of drugs and uh, being managed to actually uh, fight it, which was fantastic, but also the way actually a lot of the central banks operated and chancellors to actually get uh, systems up to try and actually provide support for the economy. They'll come into criticism now because they're very expensive, things like furlough and, and business support loans and things like that. But to a great extent, they actually operated. There'll be scandals coming out of it, no doubt. You know, the concern I got this year is this year of the squeeze. The consumer gets squeezed, companies see their margins being squeezed, and there will be further issues related to the pandemic because there will be other variants coming through. Now, one would like to think that as the variants come through, maybe they get weaker, maybe our knowledge gets better, and then we can control it more. But no, I'm not a, a medical scientist. I wouldn't know. But that's a sort of judgment you've got at the moment. So leave the pandemic to one side and assume that carries on and we use that awful phrase, learn to live with it. Um, but actually, therefore, you see the economies, Western economies starting to grow. But it won't be that initial drive of a V-shaped recovery we saw last year um, as almost a relief recovery. You now get into an area where it starts to sag down a bit. And if you want a letter of the alphabet from a V-shaped recovery, you now get a W-shaped recovery. It sort of wobbles along. But it's still a recovery. It's not going backwards. Um, and so that, to me, is quite encouraging. I expect the American economy, much to my uh, Gobi Tarsen, because I want the American economy to do well, because I fear that if you actually see a resurgence of Trump, that's not good news for the global economy on all sorts of levels. Um, but I fear that actually uh, President Biden, dear Sleepy Joe, um, may not necessarily be able to provide enough dynamism to keep that economy going. If he, at the same rate as before, and it looks like the Republicans could get in to control Congress, um, and they'll put a block on any other reforms he could do. The American political system is not working well at the moment. Um, that's not to say ours is any better, but theirs is more important, frankly. So that does concern me. Uh, there will be growth, but it's not going to be as exciting as before. So companies may well find their margins being squeezed. So the growth we saw before, we're not going to see again, in my view, not in the short term. Does that mean you disinvest? No. Because remember, it's something I know you always go on about quite rightly. Is that compounding of returns you're going to be getting of long-term investing from uh, getting your dividends coming up? So off the FTSE 100, you're still getting 3.5% uh, yield on that. Better than any deposit account you're going to get. Um, and compound that over time, and that's going to give you not a bad return, um, nothing wildly exciting. But you should be able to do a little bit better than that. But I suspect the big moves we've seen of this year, last, last year, we're not going to see repeated this year. Um, they've already done that. Um, the UK has always been a laggard here. We're not seen as the place to invest in politically for all sorts of reasons. But remember, again, something you're very familiar with, uh, the FTSE 100 is a global index, it's not a domestic index. And it's not as exciting as the NASDAQ because that's got the high tech stuff in it. 
question is, is the London Stock Exchange got enough imagination to actually market itself to attract more technology and smaller businesses to it? The answer is it could, it should. I'm not too sure it actually will, though, but uh, that's something I'll be banging the drum about to see if I can get them to change there. So it's growth, Jim, but not as we know it. Well, yes, growth, Jim, but not very exciting. <laughs> With the year of the squeeze, this is a question from one of our lovely clients. Sorry about this one, but I'll put you on the spot. So what do you think? What's your estimate of the value of the FTSE 100 by the end of this year? I think it's probably going to end up being flat or maybe slightly lower. It's slightly lower, which you shouldn't actually get too worried about because uh, we've uh, seen uh, after what we've gone through, that's not bad. What you can't do is throw forward what's happened in the past and say that's going to carry on into the future. I would estimate, you know, that this is going to be pretty unexciting periods. Where you actually get a bit more excitement coming into it, and this is where I know you'll be watching the markets very closely, there'll be opportunities where there'll be some disasters occurring and issues, there'll be a level of nerves when interest rates go up, um, and there'll be, uh, we used to have things called the taper tantrum, which is basically as the government start getting rid of quantitative easing, um, and therefore tightening up money supply, uh, and the markets can get upset with that. That will provide us with opportunities to maybe buy assets at a discount. So I would always urge people to keep 5 or 10%, 10% maybe a bit much, but depending on your age level, aside to take advantage of those elements to be able to invest if you see them coming through at a, at a discount. If you believe that is, that the global economy is still going to grow. If you don't think it's going to grow and you think we're off to hell in a hay cart, then go and buy a case of Scots and sit in a cave in Wales. Um, and the stock market will be utterly irrelevant. Um, but if you still think you're going to be around, then you know, actually stay with it for the longer term. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we're going to see a much stronger figure. But I prefer to be just a little bit more uh, realistic for the time being until I can see proper reasons for further significant growth coming through. Yeah, that makes sense, Justin. And of course, the FTSE 100 is not back above the level that it was or to meet the level pre-pandemic. So that reminds us once again that the global focus on investing is not all about the UK. And we do see a lot of portfolios overly weighted to the UK because, of course, we're here in the UK. But it does remind yep. us, doesn't it, when we look at what's happened in, over the pandemic, we're not back to where we were. So... I think we'll wrap up there, Justin, and I'd like to thank you for your insightful input today. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed the topic we've discussed, and we will be recording more webcasts. Justin has kindly volunteered to perhaps do a quarterly update for us, so we'll look forward to that. And in the meantime, keep smiling. Can I also just add to that, Louise, as well? Uh, congratulations to you and the team uh, for a very successful year in doing what is the most important part of finance, which is getting proper family financial plannings across. And you have been doing stupendous work for your clients on that. I've seen that with them, and I know they're very happy with it. So well done to you. Well done to the team. And it's been a great pleasure working with you. Look forward to providing any further help I can. Thank you, Justin.